following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Good morning again. My name is Derek McCollum. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you already, I would love to. As Russell mentioned, we're in the second week of our Grow Deep campaign, but we're continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Nehemiah, or you can follow along as I read to us from chapter 6, kind of the last half of chapter 6 and the very beginning of chapter 7 in Nehemiah. We're going to see Nehemiah and this great project of building, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem is coming to a close, and there's some wonderful things happening. So follow along with me, if you will. Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, And Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Sakaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehonahan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and they reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is God's Word. He gives it to us because He loves us and He wants us to know Him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for its everlasting quality that we, in a strange time, in a strange place, can still open up your word and hear what you have to say to us. Thank you for graciously revealing yourself to us. We pray, Lord, that as we come in contact with your word, that you would work revival in our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, Nehemiah is a book about change isn't it? Uh, A guy who comes into a city where the walls in the city is crumbling, and he helps rebuild them. It's a book about renewal. We could also say that this is a book about revival. Now, that word may strike you as a little bit odd. Usually, when we use the word revival in the church, we get these images of tents and summer meetings and you know, kind of a little bit too crazy men dressed up in white suits and people falling all over the ground, and they're just a little too sweaty and lots of commotion going on. But revival doesn't have to be something that's kind of crazy. Revival isn't something spoken of in the Bible that's absurd. Revival is actually 
something that God is doing through some very normal activities. In fact, I love this description of revival that Tim Keller gives in his book, Center Church. Listen to this definition. Revival is an intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit, conviction of sin, regeneration and sanctification, assurance of grace, through the ordinary means of grace, preaching the Word, prayer, and sacraments. See, what Keller is saying is that revival is the normal thing that the Holy Spirit does through the normal ways that the Holy Spirit works to produce something that's very abnormal, very noteworthy, really pretty amazing. And as you close chapter 6 of Nehemiah and look at chapter 7, what we're seeing is actually something pretty incredible. A man has come from a foreign land, a place that would take literally months to get to, and he has come to help rebuild a wall with very few people around, not a whole lot of folks helping him out, and there are attacks and opposition, great opposition from the outside, from a lot of people who don't want to see that happen, and he's got to deal with a lot of crumbling things on the inside too. God's people are not treating each other like they should. But we read here that it all gets done in 52 days. Friends, that's amazing. You don't see any crazy miracles happening. You don't see any lightning bolts from heaven. But what you see is the Holy Spirit working in His normal way through very normal means to create something very abnormal, something very amazing. We call that revival. So we're just going to look today from Nehemiah 6 and 7 at what revival looks like in the church, specifically what it is meant to do to those outside the church and what it is meant to do to those inside the church, and then we'll look at a little bit of the obstacles to revival as well before we look finally at the hope that we have of God's continuous work. So let's start talking about what revival is meant to do for those outside the church. And here's what we see in Nehemiah 6 is that revival helps those outside the church see who God is. That's one of the things that revival always does in the Bible, is it helps those who are outside the church see who God is. And the first thing that they see in these chapters is that they see and they are afraid. Those outside the church see what God is doing, and it actually makes them afraid. Let me read to you verses 15 and 16 one more time. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, which, by the way, is probably around October, that's kind of fun, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of the Lord. When they knew that the work had been accomplished with the help of the Lord, it made them afraid. Now, there should be something that's noteworthy here that catches your attention. Maybe you remember this guy, Tobiah, that he's been talking about, as mentioned here. He has been the companion of another guy named Sanballat. And we hear that guy's name all throughout Nehemiah. Sanballat is really the chief villain in Nehemiah. And Tobiah is his kind of main henchman, okay? So these are the guys that are leading the charge against Nehemiah and against the rebuilding of this wall. And in fact, most of what they have been doing this whole time is that they have been trying to instill fear in God's people. 
They had been trying to make Nehemiah and those helping him afraid so that they would stop actually building the wall. In fact, we get it again here, right, in verse 19. What do we hear? They spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. That was what Tobiah wanted to do. He wanted to make Nehemiah afraid. But what do we get here at the end? Is that Tobiah and Sambalat, whose main goal was to make Nehemiah afraid, are afraid themselves. The tables have been turned. The guys who were trying to actually lead this intimidation campaign are now afraid because they see of what the Lord is, what the Lord is doing. When I was probably seven or eight, it's a Halloween, and I was out trick-or-treating, and at this age, you know, um, I was trick-or-treating in the neighborhood, and there's kind of this age where, you know, you're old enough to walk up to the door by yourself, but not old enough to go walk down the street all through the neighborhood by yourself, right? So my mom was coming with me, and she would walk me around, and we'd go from house to house, and she would typically stand at the street, and I would walk then from the street to the house, knock on the door, say, trick-or-treat, and they would give me candy. That's the way it's supposed to work. In fact, that's what's embedded even in that idea of trick-or-treat, right, is that you're supposed to say, well, if you don't give me a treat, then I will trick you in some way, do something mischievous, or I'll scare you. And so we dress up in these scary costumes, and we go up to the door, and at least when you open the door, you're supposed to pretend like you're afraid. Ooh, what are you dressed up as? I'm so afraid. Here's some candy. Leave me alone. Well, on this particular Halloween night, the tables got a little bit turned. My mom walked with me down the street. I've got this house in my mind even right now. It's on a corner. We walk down the street. We turn the corner. There's a long walkway from the street all the way to the door. And so she stays on the street. I take off to the door slowly, my little seven-year-old legs, you know, taking me as fast as they could to the door, and I've got my scary costume on. I don't remember what it was. But I knocked on the door, and the door opened, and there, standing behind the door, was Darth Vader. And I just need you to remember, this is, this is like the early 80s, okay? So Star Wars was still fresh, and Darth Vader was, and still is, the greatest villain of all time, and the scariest individual I had ever known in my young life. And the man that lived at this house was not wearing, like, you know, a plastic mask with a rubber band. He had somehow gotten hold of Hollywood-level Darth Vader garb, and he looked exactly like Darth Vader. And before any words came out of my mouth, there was no trick-or-treat, there was no, can you please give me some candy, there was nothing, there was me turning around, and I'm telling you, it was NFL Combine like 40 time of me getting back up that long driveway to my mom, because I have never been so afraid in my life. I, I think still when I rode my bike around the neighborhood, I would make a little wide berth around that house. I'm not sure I ever approached that house again. Now, I was supposed to be the one scaring, right? And I'm the one who got scared. That's kind of what's happening here in Nehemiah 6. The guys who have the ill intentions see what God is doing, and it changes them in some way, and they become afraid. That's actually one of the first steps even in seeing revival from the outside. Those who are looking in on revival happening in the church, something happens to their hearts. And in this case, it's fear that's happening in their hearts. 
Now, we don't learn this from Nehemiah because we don't get the rest of the story of Sambalat and Tobiah, but throughout the Bible, we also learn that there's supposed to be some other things happening when people see the Lord at work, when those outside the church or God's people see God working in revival is that they see and they also then are challenged. Not only are they afraid sometimes, but they are often challenged. If you remember this last February on the campus of Asbury University, they had a normal chapel service that then just kind of lasted for like a month. All of these students got together, and they were doing normal things. They were singing. They were praying. And as they began to pray, they continued to pray, and those prayers lasted for almost an entire month. Students from all over the country, from other campuses, came to join in. News crews came to focus their attention on what was going on at Asbury University because God was doing something incredible through these normal means. And when the world outside looked in at what was happening, they were challenged, weren't they? Because listen, the numbers will tell you, the story goes, Christianity is on the decline. And you know, it's on the decline, especially with this particular demographic of college students. But God actually did something there that drew the attention of the world around to look in and say, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what's happening here, but God is actually doing something, and that challenges even my preconceptions of who God is and of who Jesus is. So that's the second thing that the world is supposed to see, that they are supposed to see and be challenged. And then here's a third that we see throughout the Bible too is that when the world looks in at revival, they are to see and be changed. Again, we don't know what happens with these guys, but it's our hope and prayer that what happens with their hearts is what happens very oftentimes in the Bible when outsiders look in and see God at work amongst His people, is that they see and they're changed. I got to go to the Options for Life banquet this week. Options for Life is an organization in our town whose main purpose is to help young women who are pregnant, probably with an unwanted pregnancy, and care for them and love them and help care for their children as well. And very oftentimes what happens is that a young woman who did not expect to be pregnant comes in and she is full of fear. And that fear is driving all that she does. And she's wondering, I don't know what I want to do. Do I want to keep this baby? I don't know what to do. I'm only controlled by my fear here. And one of the things that's the most amazing that oftentimes happens is the thing that they try to do first and foremost is to say, why don't you come in here and we'll offer you a free sonogram? And during that sonogram, something incredible happens, is that when that young mother actually sees the child growing within her, everything changes. And she goes from fear to love. And her mentality and her outlook and her desires radically change to loving that child that is growing within her. And friends, that is what is meant to happen when those outside the church look in and see God at work, is that they are meant to be changed, to move actually from fear to love, the goal is to move people from being afraid of God to fearing God, not fearing in the way of like, I'm afraid, but fearing in the way of worship and following, to move from fear to love. That is the purpose of revival in the church. 
All right, let's turn it the other side now and look at the purpose of revival to those inside the church. Because revival, actually, though it has outward consequences in ways that God often works for those outside, revival is often seen on those inside the church. And we get to actually see some of that at work here in Nehemiah 6 as well. And here's what we learn is that revival helps those inside the church devote themselves more deeply to God, right? So, revival doesn't just help those outside the church see who God is, but it helps those inside the church devote themselves more deeply to the Lord. And one of the things that happens when God's people devote themselves more deeply to Him is that worship becomes more central. Worship becomes more central for God's people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7 again, if you've got a Bible, or it should be on the screen here as well. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, and we'll pause there because that's interesting. Nehemiah is working as a builder here, and he's finishing the wall, and he's building the gates. And of course, once we finish the gates, we put the doors on the gates, and we put the locks on the gates, and we put the hinges there, and we make sure everything's finished. And then we need to appoint some people like gatekeepers, gatekeepers who make sure to open and close the doors at the right time to make sure we know who's coming in and out here. That sounds normal, doesn't it? That if we've got gates, we would have gatekeepers. But there's a couple of other groups that are mentioned there as well, Levites and singers. That's interesting that Nehemiah appoints at the gates Levites and singers. The Levites were those whose job was to work at the temple. They were kind of like the church staff. And the singers were those who were called to lead God's people in worship. They're kind of like the choir. And Nehemiah, in this beautiful description, actually appoints not only gatekeepers, those who are going to do the the functional kind of practical things at the gates, but also the church staff and the choir. I love the way that Derek Kidner, who is a Bible commentator, this is what he says about this passage. He says, having the temple choir at the gates of the city would show clearly that not just the professionals in the temple, but the whole city was focused on the worship of God. See, God was working renewal in them, revival in the people, and worship became something that was more central to them than it was before. Listen to these words as well from Derek Thomas, who also has a really fantastic first name, doesn't he? Another Bible commentator. This is what he says, and I think that it's very timely for us. Church building programs of which we are a part of one right now, which can so often dominate certain periods in a church's life, sometimes miss the point. We can so easily become enamored of the building itself, a stained glass window, its fine architecture, the excitement of a building fund campaign, the joy of watching the Lord provide. All of this is wonderfully exciting, but our gaze cannot stop at the qualities of a building. If all we do at the end is to admire bricks and mortar, We have miserably failed in the main thing. Our chief end is to praise God. We were created for this, and our sense of fulfillment is wanting without it. See, friends, when God works revival in His people, worship becomes the main thing, and it pushes out everything else so that everything is centered around the worship of the Lord. I said this last week, 
and I'll probably say it more than even this week, this phrase that my friend Joe Brand, our, um, our, our counselor here during this Grow Deep campaign, he says this all the time to me. He says, you know, campaigns like this, they are not financial journeys with spiritual implications. They are spiritual journeys with financial implications. You hear the difference? That's what we're doing. We're going on a spiritual journey that just so happens to have financial implications. Worship has to be the main thing. Here's the second thing that happens when God works in His people, um, is that not only worship becomes more important, but devotion becomes more important as well. There are better habits of devotion that develop. Look again at verse 3 of chapter 7. I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. The Hebrew in here is actually interesting. It's a little hard to know what Nehemiah is commanding here. Does he actually want them to wait a little while until the doors are opened in the day? Or there's another way actually of translating that, that says that in the middle of the day, close the doors for a little while and open it back up, maybe so everyone can take a siesta. I actually think the ESV's translation hits it right on the head here, and most modern commentators will say that this is the best translation, and for this reason, is that what Nehemiah is probably doing here is he is instilling in God's people some particular patterns and some rhythms, some time actually in the morning for them to do the heart transformation work before they do the world interaction work. You hear that? some time before the gates of the city open up so that they might interact with the world around them. The gates are not meant to remain closed, but that there is a beneficial time for the work of being God's people so that they might actually be that people to the world around them. There's a fantastic book that may actually be on our book table called The Common Rule. And it's a book really about kind of developing a rule of life, some particular patterns, some habits in your life, and it's written from a guy who developed a particular set of patterns written in a very modern way with modern names to meet our modern needs. It's a very helpful book. And one of his habits, one of his patterns is called Bible Before Phone. You know why he's doing that? It's because probably you, exactly like me, the first thing that I want to do when I wake up in the morning is grab my phone and see what has happened, what's new, what's in the news, who emailed me during the middle of the night, which who emails people in the middle of the night? I don't know. Only spam, right? It's all I get is spam in the morning, but I just, for whatever reason, I want to open it up and look at my spam email first thing in the morning. I want to know what's going on outside. And what he's saying very helpfully is, no, 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 let's spend some time on heart formation before we go to world interaction. I actually have a phone who made his screensaver on his phone those words. It was a picture that said Bible before phone, so that when he picked his phone up to get on his phone, he got the words Bible before phone, and he was like, oh, I got to put it down. It's good advice. It's good advice for us to spend some time forming our hearts before we interact with the world around us. All right, let's turn our attention now to actually some of the challenges, to the challenges to revival, because we've got a lot of those as well in chapter 6. We learn actually here that revival actually stalls when allegiances are mixed. When we have mixed allegiance, it's actually a barrier to revival. 
Uh, look again, actually, at chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, and you're going to see, actually, that God's people's hearts were in multiple places. Listen to 17 again, if I can find it. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of dot, 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 and I won't try to pronounce all of those names again. But let me explain to you what's going on here, is that Tobiah is a really savvy businessman and politician, and he has gained power in Israel by intermarrying with the families, with the noble families in Israel. So those upper-class kind of ruling party people were actually making marriage alliances with Tobiah and his family so that they could be bound by blood to one another. And in the ancient world, that fa those family bonds were usually business bonds as well. And so you have not only the blood bonds of intermarriage, but you have also the monetary bonds of business dealings together. And what's happening here for God's people is that when the rubber really hits the road and Nehemiah says, okay, it's time actually to devote your hearts completely to the Lord, they've got two big things in the way, family and money. Now, you may or may not know this, but this was actually explicitly forbidden in God's law. God had forbidden His people from intermarrying with the people around. And I don't have time enough to explain all of that, but let me just say this to you. Those laws are not about race. They're not about racial intermarriage. They are about idolatry. In fact, all of God's laws are about not only our actions, but our hearts. And so, what God is prohibiting in this intermarriage is prohibiting the ability for people to have their hearts then tied to the religious customs of another people. And what you see all throughout the Old Testament is that when they break those laws, that's exactly what happens, is that their allegiances are then split and they start to follow other gods. And we are seeing that that is happening here is that Tobiah has set up these uh, marriage alliances and these business dealings with God's people so that they are now, what Nehemiah says is, bound by oath to him. That word bound is actually a word in Hebrew that talks about ownership. You would own a house or cattle, and these people are owned by Tobiah. It's helpful, I think, for us to pause and just ask for a second, what are we bound to? What are we bound to that is mixing our allegiances, that is tugging on our hearts, that actually keeps us from following the Lord? Is it maybe your social media presence? Or is it your political affiliation? Or is it your money and your particular job or the lifestyle that you've gotten into? What are the chains that are around you that are keeping you from being devoted completely to the Lord? Because, friends, God calls us to put Him at the center of all things, to worship Him exclusively, and to revolve everything else around Him. Let's move on to the end of chapter 7, and we'll finish there where this passage ends. I want to read to you verse 4 one more time. 
The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Boy, that's an ominous ending, isn't it? That's a weird feeling to have this kind of celebration time where they finish this wall and everything seems really great. And here we are with the wall that's finished, but a city that's kind of in shambles still. And it's empty. There are not enough people there. And a lot of those houses where the people would live would be still broken down. What do we learn from this? Well, I actually think there's some hope to take from this very ominous ending here. And it's this, is that the revival project is not finished. God's revival does not finish in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 3. God's work is still continuing. And you know that God is still working through the normal means, through the normal activities of His people and the normal working of His Spirit to do very abnormal, very amazing things in and through His people and shown to the world around And God will continue to do that through His church, and He will continue to call us to revival on the inside that allows us to devote ourselves to worship. And He will continue to actually bring in others from the outside to see those changes. In fact, there is incredible hope for us given at the very end of the Bible of what that's going to look like when Jesus returns. I want you to listen to these great words from Revelation chapter 21. The book of Revelation is a vision that the Apostle John gets from the Lord, and part of his vision here at the end is what things are going to be like when Jesus returns. And this is what he sees in Revelation 21. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then He goes on to describe this city. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Isn't that amazing? What, what John actually tells us is this rebuilding, renewing, revival project that God is on will have its completion one day, and that city rebuilding will look really different. There will be no need, actually, for a temple. There will be no need even for a sun. There will be no need for gates that stay open and closed because they will always be open. Because those who come in, the nations around, will have moved from fear to the fear of the Lord. They will bring their glory in and proclaim God's glory together. Friends, we await a time in which there will be an everlasting city that will not need a wall to be rebuilt around it, because Jesus, the King who sits on that throne, is currently now making all things new, and there is a time in which that revival project will be finished. We look forward to that. We ask the Lord to be at work in our hearts, in our church, in our place so that the glory of the nations might be brought in 
and so that God's people might be renewed to proclaim the everlasting kingship of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me that He be about that work even now? Father in heaven, we are grateful for this wonderful hope that we have of renewal, of revival. And we do pray, Spirit, that You would work revival in our hearts and in our community, in our church, through some really normal things like opening up Your Word together, like meeting with each other and in our homes and breaking bread with one another and talking about what's going on in our lives, like coming to Your table, like proclaiming and celebrating baptism, like communing with You in prayer, these regular normal things, Lord, that You, by the power of Your Spirit, take and change them into something extremely abnormal, something wonderful, something mesmerizing, Your work in and through us. We pray that You would be about that even now. In Jesus' name, amen.